Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. If you will, find your copy of Scripture to 1 Peter 1. We're going to read it beginning in verse 13 here in just a few moments. Um, we talked a little bit the last week or last week about who Peter was writing to. Uh, week one, rather. He's writing to elect exiles who were dispersed throughout the re- area of Asia. One thing we didn't really get at, though, is where Peter was writing from. And we'll deal with this probably in a little more detail in the weeks ahead. But in the last chapter of the book of First Peter, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes that he and the church, she, and the church described as a she, who is at Babylon, greet you. And so what's Peter doing? Is he in physical Babylon, historical Babylon? I don't think so. I think the text is, uh, is relatively clear, especially when you connect it with the book of Revelation, that Babylon is a figurative language descriptive of Rome. That's probably where Peter was when he's writing this. Because Babylon, according to Joel Green in his commentary, represents... Um, all of the things that not only are, are, are working against God in the world, but are hostile to God in the world. He puts it this way. He says, Peter is highlighting emphatically the problems of the Christian life and witness in the presence of a world system, not only out of step with God's purposes, but actually and actively set against God's purposes. I mean, Rome was a pagan, wicked place. It was ruled by people who were terrible, they were debauched, they were evil, they were wicked. The region was wicked, the the city was wicked, and it got even more wicked over the course of the first several centuries that Christians existed in it. And, And Peter's probably there underneath the very emperor who is going to crucify him upside down, Nero. Uh, And so it's just a terrible place. And what Peter is doing is he's writing to a group of believers, encouraging them from this place that is increasingly wicked and depraved and unrighteous. The reason I bring that up at the start of this message is because it is very helpful for us to remember that the book of 1 Peter guides us in how to interact with the world and a world system that isn't just in opposition to God. It's not, it's not like the, our world system is just kind of, okay, God's over here and we're over here. And, and our world system's going to react against God. No, our world system is actively working against biblical standards. As I mentioned in the Jeremiah series, we no longer live in a Christian America. We live in a post-Christian America. A place where the values that are held by so many in our country and so many of those in influence and in power, such as in schools, places of higher education and politics, they're not only in opposition to God, they're actively trying to discard what Scripture teaches. And so what Peter offers us in the book of 1 Peter is a letter to encourage us how in the world do we live as Christians in the midst of a culture that is challenging our very sense of values and beliefs scripturally. And we are in that culture. We're in a world that uh, is trying to reshape even the way we think. I recently finished a book uh, entitled The Benedict Option. 
And one of the passages, one of the sections in the book deals with technology. It was talking about the internet and, and what the internet has done to the way that we think. You'll understand why this is important in just a moment when we read our text. But the, the statement is this. One thing is very clear. If knowing what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you would probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the internet. The, the point by the author there, the speaker, is Nicholas Carr. What he's saying is that the technology that we have, internet, uh, social media apps, the way that we view our information, what he's saying is the technology that we have is not just neutral in the sense we use it or we don't use it, we use it for good or we use it for evil, but it actually changes the way that we think. And what it does is it keeps us from being able to think deeply. Many of you have already experienced this. You know this in your own personal life, that the more TV you watch, the more internet that you have, the harder it is to sit down and concentrate for an extended period of time. Why? Well, the technology that we have is actually rewiring the way that our brains work. Where our brains are working at a faster pace, we're able to take in a lot of information because we're giving our brains a lot of information. The problem is we're not doing a very good job processing that information, thinking deeply about it, contemplating it, and learning to act on it. Now, why is that a challenge in light of the passage of Scripture we're going to read? Well, pick up with me, if you don't mind, in verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake." Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In this passage of scripture, there are several specific imperatives that Peter gives, telling us that we're to live a particular way. The primary imperative that kind of is the overarching idea in this passage of scripture comes from verse 13, where Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we're looking at in this particular passage of scripture is we're looking at this idea that we're to set our minds on the hope that is in front of us. So the aim is to be hopeful. Now he builds that off of something else. He begins verse 13 with the word therefore, which always looks back. 
So what he's saying is the salvation that we have in Jesus is the foundation for the practice of our spiritual lives. So setting our lives and our minds on this hopeful perspective, looking forward to the grace that we're going to receive and being hopeful is built on the salvation that we already have. Um, Tom Schreiner puts it this way in his commentary. He says, another way of putting this is to say that the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, is always the basis for the imperative, how we should live our lives for Christ. He says, to confuse the order here would be disastrous, and the result would be works righteousness instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power, and as a response to the love of God in Christ. In other words, the emphasis is this. Because of what God has done in Christ to cleanse you of your sin, to redeem you from your unrighteousness, to draw you to himself through his Holy Spirit, to prepare your salvation by his planning work, to bring you into a faith relationship with himself, because of what he's done, now we're to live out of that a life that reflects the glory and the holiness and the righteousness and the wonder of God. A life that reflects the hopefulness of the grace that we've experienced, setting our minds on that. So in this particular passage, I find three specific requirements for experiencing that hopeful life. The life that Peter is telling us now our conduct needs to look like this. So the first one is this. To be hopeful requires a ready mind. A ready mind. In, in, the, in the original language, the phrase is not preparing your minds. The phrase is girding up the loins of your mind. That's a, that's a phraseology that we don't understand today because we have pants. But in the day and age in which Peter wrote and lived, all the men and all the women wore robes. And when they wanted to go somewhere quickly and they didn't want to be tripped by the robes, they would reach down and pull the back part of their robes in between their legs and they would tuck it in their belt. Peter did this on a number of occasions. He did this when he ran to the empty tomb to see whether Jesus was indeed resurrected or not. He, he tucked his robe in his belt and he ran there to see what was happening. The, the picture is this, that we're to get ready for whatever we're going to be doing. In other words, he's telling us that for you and I to be holy, for you and I to express love, for you and I to walk in the hope that Peter's telling us we have in Jesus Christ, it's going to take... Minds that are ready for action. In other words, we can't any longer be content to be so distracted by all of the things around us, whatever they are, work, job, cell phone, TV, radio. We can't allow all of those distractions to keep us from focusing our attention on this important principle of Christian living. I'm going to say something that I don't know that I've ever said in a sermon before. This sermon is important for us today, but it is, it is really more important as the beginning step of a way of life. What I mean by that is this. If you and I are going to be the kind of maturing followers of Jesus that we need to be, walking out of here tonight or walking out of your living room on a Sunday morning after you watch this, you're not going to just be able to say, okay, great, I'm going to set my mind for action and I'm going to be holy and I'm going to love other people like I ought to, like the preacher's telling me, and I'm good and I've applied it and I'm great. No, this is going to be, have to be a pattern that we put into place in our spiritual lives. 
Because if we're not careful, what we're going to do is we're going to see these application points and we're going to try them for a day or two. And then we're going to fall right back into the same patterns of distraction and disappointment and sin and and conforming to the ways of the world. In other words, the way we put this passage into, into practice in our lives is we really dive into this claim that Peter makes that we've got to have minds that are ready for action. What does he mean by that? The Christian life cannot be merely a shift from emotional experience to emotional experience. I know some Christians who who their spiritual life is completely based on what good thing happened to them recently or what bad thing happened to them recently. In other words, they're driven, their spiritual life and maturity is driven by their emotional experiences. Folks, let me just say something to you very, very clearly. Emotions are a glorious part of God's gift to human life. But we cannot set our spiritual maturity based on our emotional experiences. Because our emotions go up and down. Sometimes they go up for good reasons. Sometimes they go up for bad reasons. Sometimes they go down for good reasons. Sometimes they go down for bad reasons. But what Peter is saying to us is that our our emotional state is not the primary driver or engine of our spiritual life. Our minds have to be. Because our minds, in our minds, we take what God says to be true. We believe it and we hold on to it. And whether I feel like it or not, guess what? I have a hope. In that one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to give me a grace that I will have never imagined. No matter how I feel, no matter what's going on up or down, that is true. And that is something I need to set my mind on. So we don't need to move from emotional experience to emotional experience. We also need to be careful that we don't set our Christian lives simply by ritualistic experience or by action. Yes, we behave and we obey, but, but if you're going to judge your spiritual maturity by how many good deeds you did this week, some weeks you're going to be good, and some weeks you're going to have the flu. And, and so your spiritual, man, I, I wasn't good at all this week because I couldn't do anything for anybody. Well, that, but that's not where our spiritual maturity is. Peter says this, preparing your minds for action. It doesn't start with activity, and it doesn't start with emotion. It starts with us acknowledging what God says to be true. And what God says to be true is that you are a follower of his. You've been redeemed by his son. You've been cleansed and you have been made right. John Stott in his little book, um, uh, uh, sorry, Your Mind Matters, he puts it this way. He says, we are to consider not only what we should really be by God's grace, but what we already are by God's grace We are to constantly recall what God has done for us and we're to say to ourselves, this is good advice for you. Listen, I'm going to blog on this next week, so I'll put it in a blog post where you can read this quote later. But I want you to hear this and I want you to think on it. Here's what we should tell ourselves. God has united me with Christ in his death and resurrection. And thus he obliterated my old life and he's given me an entirely new life in Christ. He has adopted me into his family and he's made me his child. He has put his Holy Spirit within me and so made my body his temple. He has also made me his heir and promised me an eternal destiny with him in heaven. This is what he has done for me and in me and this is what I am in Christ. Acknowledging that, believing that, holding on to that, being anchored in those truths, those gospel truths, is what will help us to have a ready mind 
that is able to move forward into behaviors that are holy and behaviors that are loving. The quality of your spiritual life will never exceed the quality of your thought life. Let me say that again. The quality of your spiritual life will never exceed the quality of your thought life. And I don't just mean taking out sinful thoughts, prideful thoughts, arrogant thoughts, lustful thoughts, angry thoughts. I don't mean that because a lot of times when we hear that phrase thought life, we associate it with evil thoughts. And yes, that's part of what we cut out. But that's not the the whole point. The point is that our minds are focused on the things that God wants us to think about. That God wants us to dwell on. That God wants us to know are true. Those gospel truths from the first part of 1 Peter. Now folks, this is why scripture memory, scripture meditation, reading scripture is so important for our Christian experience. Because we need to think the right things. And I'll just advise you, thinking thoughts that are God's thoughts are pretty good thoughts. Because they're holy thoughts and they're glorious thoughts and they're good thoughts and they're thoughts that will never go away. So to be hopeful requires a ready mind. But it doesn't just require a ready mind. To be hopeful requires holy conduct. God doesn't just long for us to think right. He wants us to behave right. Notice what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's an interesting way for Peter to phrase that. Don't be conformed to the ways you used to be. Don't go back and do all the things that you used to do. And then he uses that phrase as obedient children. Some commentators would prefer that that is phrased as children of obedience. The emphasis here is not that you are obeying The emphasis is that you're a child who is created, saved, redeemed to obey. In other words, the emphasis is on the fact that you're in relationship with God. You're one of his children. Therefore, you obey out of the relationship. And out of the relationship and obeying, you ignore and put aside and set aside all of those former things that you used to do. And then Peter gives it a positive emphasis. He says this, Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, uh, Peter's really beginning to get straightforward here. He's going back and looking at Old Testament quotes from the book of Leviticus, where God says to the people of Israel, I'm holy, you be holy. And Peter is restating that for the church, for the believers. So, To be hopeful and to keep our minds on the things that God wants us to keep on requires holy conduct. God expects you to live in a way that looks like him. Now, if I just stop right there and we pause and we spend the rest of our time reflecting on today, on this past week, on this past month, on our behaviors, on our thoughts, on our deeds, on our wants, on our motivations... We're going to find a lot of things that are not holy. We're going to find a lot of things that are not what God wants. Why does Peter say that we need to have holy conduct? Because folks, you and I are living inside a world system that hates God and hates the things of God. And the only way that we're going to make it through with a sense of peace and confidence in who God is, is if we remain close to God and right with God in the behavior that we're supposed to have. Holy in conduct. But that also sets us apart. You know how the early church 
shifted the entire ancient Greco-Roman culture. They preached the gospel and they lived a life that matched the preaching of the gospel. You want to see people staggered by the influence of Christians in a post-Christian America? Live a holy life. Live a life that lines up with the pages of Scripture. We are required to have holy conduct. Why? Now, Peter's going to give some several reasons for why we are to be holy. For starters, it's God's character. We're God's family. We're now part of his family. God doesn't say to us, be holy so you can be a part of my family. I want you to get that. That's really good news because if he did that, we'd be in a lot of trouble because none of us line up there. He doesn't say that. He says, be holy because you're part of my family. He says, because I've redeemed you and brought you in and you're my children, I want you to be holy. I want you to reflect my character in the way that you live and behave. And he gives it this phrase. He says, and if you call on him as father. Peter's reminding us that we have a personal relationship with the living God and we can call him father. And that's a reason for us to be holy because our father is holy and he's made us a part of his family. Another reason for us to be holy is notice this. If you call on God, Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's again using that phrase of not, this is not our home. There are two Greek words Peter could have used for where we live. One is setting up permanent residence, but the one word he chose, that word exile, is setting up temporary residence. In other words, it's an idea that, yes, this is where we live, but it's not our permanent residence, it's our temporary residence, because it is, we are to fear God. We're to recognize that God sees everything, and one day you and I are going to stand before God the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we used our thoughts, how we used our time, how we used our resources. We're going to give an account for the way that we behaved. Now, all of our sins have been cleansed in Jesus. It means we're not at the great white throne judgment later in the book of Revelation. But there is going to come a time when every believer is going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for the way that we lived Folks, that's a motivation to be holy. Because there's not a thing. You can hide stuff from your spouse. You can hide stuff from your kids. You can hide stuff from your neighbors. You can hide stuff from your pastor and your church. But folks, God sees everything. You can't hide anything from him. One of the reasons that Peter motivates us, encourages us to be holy, is to live in reverential fear and a sense of awe and worship at a God who sees it all. He also gives us another reason why we're to be holy and have holy conduct. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, uh, same idea of being redeemed. It's the idea of being bought, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter gives an extended reason here, talking about Jesus. We're to be holy because we've been redeemed by something that's imperishable. When God looked down across the annals of human history and saw that people would be sinners and that he would save those sinners, he didn't say, I'm going to pay an amount of money for their soul. 
He didn't say, I'm going to give a certain amount of property for their soul. He didn't say, I'm going to buy them back with, with new places that I'm going to create. He could have done that. No, he said, the only way that we can be redeemed is by shedding something so precious that it's the blood of the innocent, perfect, pure, holy son of the living God. The next time you think about sinning, Just remember whose blood it was that cleansed you of your sin in the first place. I'm going to tell you something. The more you dwell on the greatness and the extent of what God did to make sure your your sins were forgiven and cleansed, it is really, really hard to go on and do that sinful thing that you've been wanting to do. Because the comparison of, man, that, that sin, that sin is one of the reasons Jesus went to the cross. But here's the challenge, folks. We are so distracted by all the other things going on in life, we don't pause to think deeply about the glory of God's work in our salvation. We don't pause to meditate on the fact that Jesus was foreknown. Foreknown. What does that mean? We, we debate that with regard to our salvation. Let me, get, let me make this very clear. God knew that he was going to send Jesus to be your Savior and my Savior before he created Adam and Eve in the garden. God made that plan a long time ago, meaning that God's purpose has always been to redeem us through Jesus Christ. The planning, the preparation, the patience that it took for God to do that and accomplish that, and then for Jesus' blood to be shed so that your past and my past can be washed away, It's motivating for us to live a holy, holy life. Listen, we've been made children of obedience. We can turn and repent of our sins. We can be motivated by the fear of God. We can be inspired by Jesus. All of those glorious things. But here's the problem. Satan doesn't want you to be holy. The world system doesn't want you to be holy. And your own flesh doesn't want you to be holy. I mean, in reality, Peter recognizes this as he works through the rest of the book. We've got a lot of things working against us in his command to be holy. So how in the world do we pursue holiness? Listen, we cannot have holy conduct if we are more directly, consistently, and behaviorally influenced by the enemies of holiness than we are by God and his glories and his word. This is why Peter said... Gird up the loins of your minds. Be ready for spiritual action. Get your minds ready. That's why why I said this. Because if you and I are going to consistently be influenced, and by the way, I'm not trying to beat, beat up on Netflix or beat up on sports or beat up on cell phones or any of those things because I have a smartphone. I watch sports. I watch Netflix shows. I'm just like all of you. But here's, here's the temptation. If we are more influenced by all of those things, none of those things desire our holiness. There's not any agenda in Facebook to make you more holy. Their goal is to get you to scroll longer so they can give you more ads and make more money. I mean, their goal is manipulative. Same thing's true with every platform that, that we would put in front of us as a screen or as an image. And here's the deal. If you and I are going to pursue holiness... There's got to be a place where we decide as followers of Jesus, those elements around us that don't long for our holiness have got to have a cutoff point in our spiritual lives. 
where I've got to let God's word and God's truths and God's gospel have more influence on the way I think and then what I do than all of these other things have in my spiritual existence, in my spiritual life. There's no other way around it. Where to be hopeful requires holy conduct. Now, some commentators finished the section here. And in some sense, it does fiction, fi- finish here, excuse me, fiction here. Finish here because Peter puts in verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. He kind of connects it back to that claim of hope. But he goes on and he continues talking about being purified and being obedient and what else is perishable and imperishable. I think it connects. Another read, you know, if you look at your scripture, you're going to see 1 Peter 1 and you're going to see a new paragraph at verse 22. You do realize Peter didn't write with chapters and verses. Okay, he's writing an extended letter. Chapters and verses were added later. So in some sense, they're arbitrary. But I think that next paragraph connects, and I think it connects, because here's one thing we always have to remember. To be hopeful requires ready minds, and to be hopeful requires holy conduct. But God is not just interested in your spiritual life for your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God is always interested in your spiritual life and your holy conduct as it relates to the community of believers. God wants us to understand that one of the reasons he expects us to be ready in our minds, to be holy in our conduct, is because we're going to interact with other Christians and other believers. And there is a, it, there's a progression. And progress, that we are, we're to progress toward a loving relationship with other people. To be holy or to be hopeful requires sincere love. Notice this. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. And he, all he's doing is saying... If this is the way you're going to live, you're going to live a, ready, a life that's ready in your mind, a life that is holy in your conduct, you're obeying the truth, here's where it leads to. Notice where it leads to. For a sincere brotherly love. That's the word Philadelphia, one of the Greek words for love, brotherly love. Uh, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the word agape, which is a God-type love. Uh, And then he says this, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So what's Peter saying? He's saying that the way we're to live and think and be holy leads us to love one another. And it's not brotherly love in the sense that it's just a friendship love. Rightly, it could be called brother love. In other words, you and I need to realize that the folks we're sitting next to in worship service right now, or, or say you're home watching, the folks that are at church while you're at home watching or the folks that are down the street in their home watching while you're watching and we're all kind of worshiping together in the same, not in the same place, but through the same message, through the same passage of Scripture. You know what? We're all family. That's what Peter's saying. We're all family. We're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Some of us think that, that we're stepchildren. Some of us feel like stepchildren at different times. We feel like outcasts. We don't, maybe some of you feel like the black sheep. But let me just make this very clear. In Jesus' family, there are no black sheep. And there are no stepchildren. We're all adopted. We're all brought in because we didn't belong. Jesus made us belong. But what does that make us? That makes us brothers and sisters in Jesus. You know what? I've got a brother and I've got a sister. And sometimes I'm going to tell you, bless God, we didn't get along. It's always their fault. (laughs) 
so I might need to confess a moment or two. I like to stir them up and watch them get angry and then them get in trouble. That's what I did when I was a kid growing up. But we didn't get along all the time. We still don't agree on everything. But you know what? At the end of the day, we love each other. At the end of the day, we're going to do what's best for my dad. At the end of the day, we're going to, we're going to love one another. We're, we're, we're not always going to agree. We're not always going to like, but we're going to love each other. Why? Because we're family. Folks, that's the way we need to be as brothers and sisters in Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. There are times some of the brothers and sisters in Jesus that I have here at Wilkesboro Baptist and where I've been in other ministries, there's some times it was tough. Sometimes it's been tough for some of you around other brothers and sisters in Jesus. But you know what? Love should carry us through. Here's why it should carry us through, because it's way more important than that disagreement. Being a part of God's family, being forgiven, being redeemed, and sharing that love and showing that love and giving that love out in a godly way is way more important than whatever disagreement you've had with anybody else. And here's why. I want you to notice how Peter makes this connection. He says, because we have been born again, not of perishable, but of something imperishable. He's going back to that imperishable blood of Jesus, precious blood of Jesus that cleansed us. His imagery is this, the things that we, the seed that we have, how, how kids are born, that is something that's going to die. I mean, my, my kids are one day going to die. You're one day going to die. That's just part of life. We're going to die. But the fact that we've been born underneath the word of God it means that we're never going to die. In other words, the, re, the way that we've been forgiven and redeemed and brought into a relationship with Jesus will last forever. And Peter connects this to a passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 where he says, All flesh is like grass, and its glory the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's an interesting passage because Isaiah in that passage is talking about judgment that is going to come upon the people of Israel. And they can know that they have confidence in God because God's going to restore them. The image is this. There's going to come a day when we're not. But the word of God will always be. One of the reasons we're to be hopeful and have sincere love is because love is something that will last. Just think about this. Most of us, well, all of us know our parents. Or at least know who raised us. And most of us know our grandparents. How many of you know your great-grandparents, their names, where they lived, who they were, what they did? I bet none of you in the room, unless you've done some real serious ancestry search and research, know your great-great-grandparents. So in a couple of generations, after 2021, you're going to be forgotten. Your name, your place of business, your employment, your house, where you lived, what you did what you loved, what you liked, it's perishable. It is going to go away. All those things that we think are so important, all those feeds that we look at, all those television shows, all those sports teams, all of that, that's perishable. It's going to go away. It's not going to be there anymore at some point in the future. But you know what's never going to go away? The word of the gospel that redeemed you. It's never going to go away. Testimony is that 2,000 years ago, Peter was writing this to a group of struggling believers across Asia. And 2,000 years later, folks in Wilkesboro Baptist are reading this passage of scripture reflecting on the fact that the word of the Lord lasts forever. Amen? 
To be hopeful is something that lasts forever. To have ready minds and holy lives and to have a loving heart, those are the things that when all is said and done, they'll be around. They'll last in some sense in our relationship with a heavenly God and a holy creator and a God who cares for us and rewards that never go away. Folks, we have a great reason to prepare our minds and to be holy and to love others because we have a great God who loves us. Came across this story in my research this week about a, a young boy who would go spend winters in his dad's office. He'd hang out with his dad at work some, and as he did, he looked out the window and he looked out at a pond. And during the spring and the summer, the pond had a lot of ducks. But during the winter, the, the pond would freeze up. And this young boy noticed that every day he was in his dad's office, there was this guy out feeding the ducks, taking care of the ducks. In fact, when the pond would freeze over, he would crack a hole in the ice of the pond to make sure that the ducks had water. And the boy noticed this and kept wondering about it. Finally, he asked his dad, Dad, why does that guy take care of the ducks? What's the deal there? And the father answered, well, there's an interesting story behind that. The ducks saved his life, and so he loves the ducks. He said, what happened with this man is this man was uh, in the military during the Vietnam War, and he and his patrol were attacked by the Viet Cong, and they were shot, and many of his brothers were shot and fell down in the, in the field that where they were. And he wasn't shot, but he fell down and acted like he was, hoping to escape. As he was laying there, lying there, the Viet Cong soldiers were coming through that field, shooting all of the casualties, making sure that they were dead. He just knew his time was coming. All of a sudden, a flock of ducks was stirred up in the bushes next to him, and the Viet Cong soldiers were distracted by the ducks and ran off after the ducks, shooting the ducks. And eventually, this man who loved the ducks so much was able to escape. And that's why he loved the ducks so much, because the ducks saved his life. Beloved, Jesus saved your life. He shed his blood so that you could be forgiven. So that you could actually think about things that mattered. So that you could live a life that's holy and not unholy. He saved you so you could love one another. Isn't it time for you to start behaving that way? Isn't it time for you to start acting like that? And folks, I don't know where you are and I don't know who you are, but if you've not trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to tell you, He gave up everything so that you could be forgiven and cleansed. Don't you think it's time to come back home? Come back to Jesus, enter into a relationship with God. Don't you think it's time to confess your sins and trust Him as Lord and Savior? If that's you, if you're watching... You reach out to us, let us know at the church that you need to know how to trust Jesus or you can just confess your sins and pray to him and, and trust him. And you know what? He'll hear you. He'll hear you right where you are and he'll accept you if you'll believe in him as Lord and as Savior. I ask you to stand as we close our worship service. Heavenly Father, I pray for those that are under the sound of my voice that may not have trusted you as Savior, may not know how glorious it is that you came to forgive and redeem. And I pray for their souls and their salvation. Lord God, I pray for us, watching, listening, worshiping today. 
Lord, when it's all said and done, the way that we live and the way that we behave and the way that we act is all too often so much unlike the children that you want us to be. Instead of prepared minds, we have distracted minds. Instead of holy lives, we have unholy behavior. Instead of loving relationships with fellow Christians, Lord, too often our relationships are characterized by hurt feelings and disappointments and grudges. Father, forgive us. Help us to reflect on who you've made us to be, who you've created us to be, who you've saved us to be. Help us to reflect on the glory of your son Jesus shedding his pure, precious blood that we might stand here today forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, and so that we may live lives that look like we're cleansed, forgiven, and redeemed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.